0: Well, good morning, everyone. We are in Ecclesiastes 5, and as we start, we're going to ask that beginning question that we've asked the last couple weeks, and we're going to fill in the blank. And this week, we're actually going to be able to see it on the slide because no one broke in and took our remotes this week, which is awesome. What a great step forward this week. No one stole from us. So let's fill in the blank together. Let's read this together. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge and we're going to listen to that hear that repeat it think about it every sermon we have through ecclesiastes so we get out of the mindset that wisdom is associated with age and experience it is not it is associated with living god's word in our lives being consistent with god's word honoring it believing it following it and making it part of our thinking and our lives. Uh, So far in the book of Ecclesiastes, um, we've gone through four chapters, and the general tone that we have seen in the book of Ecclesiastes so far has been somewhat circumspect and negative. Let's be honest, it's been negative, it's talked a lot about dying, it's talked a lot about dying with nothing. And it's talked a lot about, hey, people are going to forget you, so what you do in life really doesn't matter because you're going to be forgotten in 100 years. No one's going to know who you are. Yay, us, that that's going to happen to all of us. In a life or a world without Christ, in a world without God, it is a desperate, sad existence and a painful future. For whatever reason, in chapter 5, Solomon switches He gives us something godly to think about. He takes us out of the realm of a world without God and puts us into a world with God, and he gives us a little bit of encouragement, although there's a ton of instruction along with that. And as we start in chapter 5, verse 1, I want to read a few quotes, because these quotes uh, really set the stage. Because what's happening at the beginning of chapter 5 is he's starting to talk about worship, how we worship God, and how that flows from chapter 4, I'll give you $5 if you can tell me how that flows from chapter 4, because I don't see how it flows. This is a guy who has, is the wisest, most biblically applied person that has ever existed, and he's making these connections, and in chapter 5, he says, right now, you need to know something about worship. Worship. And there's a few quotes that come to my mind. One is from R.C. Sproul, in which he says, If our knowledge of God is superficial, then our worship will be superficial. Listen to that. If our knowledge, if our concept of God, if if our concept of God is not biblically founded and based, then our worship is going to be awry. It's going to be mistaken. It may have emotion. It may have lifting hands and clapping hands and and all sorts of dancing and excitement and loudness. But it's going to be superficial if we're not truly worshiping God according to his word. Next, George Barna, who runs a statistic analysis Christian ministry where he looks at trends in culture and society, said, for the large majority of American Christians, which would be us, worship is about themselves what they like what they feel what they get out of it they leave god out of it although they are singing to him this is what he's seen in by and large in the christian church in america is they have a lot of worship but by and large it's always about them how they feel how they experience things An actual close personal friend of mine, a professor, Joey Piper, once said, "...there tends to be great feelings of excitement when we sing grandma's favorite hymn in worship. And to question whether that song pleases God is to question the memory of grandma. God ranks below memory, grandma, and feelings." How guilty are we of that? When the memory and feeling of someone when we hear a song, that excites us more than the God who we are actually communicating with in words. When that is the first feeling of excitement, oh, this is one of their favorite songs, I remember, and all of a sudden that becomes our focus instead of the person we're actually singing to. We're not singing to grandma. We're not even singing with Grandma. She's singing with the angels in heaven. We're singing to God. He is our one-member audience. He is. And sometimes we get, I should say, comfortable, relaxed, and maybe even a bit distracted by those feelings of love and attachment to a person that we, not intentionally, but we miss the mark when it comes to who are we singing to or for. It's not for the memory of anyone. It's for the living, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, God of all creation who has redeemed us in an act of love and mercy and grace, unmeasured, unfathomable grace. And that's who we stand before. And if that does not excite you more than Grandma's memory, then this is exactly why Solomon put chapter 5 in here, is to wake us up. And lastly... There's a gentleman by the name of Lamar Boshman, who I had an honor and privilege to meet. He's an old-time worship pastor, songwriter back in the 70s and 80s. And he once said, when I worship, I would rather my heart be without words than my words be without heart. Think of that. When I worship, I would rather my heart be without words than my words be without heart. I think that Lamar was kind of uh, summarizing what we're going to find in Ecclesiastes this morning. Because right away in chapter 5, verse 1, we read this from Solomon. Guard your steps. There's preparation in worship. Guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, to draw near, to listen, is better than to utter or offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know the evil that they do see there is a preparation in worship there is thought in worship worship is not just feeling you like it there are all there are things that we do that we know that we do not feel like doing but we do it anyway because it's a responsibility now i am not saying that we should have no feeling when it comes to god and that we are just robots repeating words because Hey, that's that's the easiest way to do this. Because in John 4, 24, Jesus gives us a beautiful, perfect example and summary of what worship should be like. And he says, God is spirit. God is spirit. And we must worship him in spirit and in truth. There is both knowledge that accompanies worship and heart that accompanies worship. Both are necessary. And Solomon says, you need to prepare. There needs to be thought involved in this. Do not just let your emotions run wild and do the next crazy thing that makes you feel good or feel nostalgic. Because what feels good and feels nostalgic may not have the truth side of the equation of pleasing God in worship. You know by and large that's the only reason why when it comes to the worship and word which preaching is part of worship we use the bible instead of anything else i don't come up here and start reading from huckleberry finn and you know we're talking about tom sawyer and that's our lesson for the day i don't break out another book or a magazine and say hey let's read this a cool article and hey all right go out there and champion the world for jesus no in the word element of worship, we go right to God's word and expound it and study it and think about it and be confronted by it so that we might change and grow and experience being face-to-face with God as a sinner who is redeemed by Christ. But there are two sides to that worship. Not just truth, but spirit heart, soul, and just like Lamar was saying, that both need to be present, and if they're not both present then I I need to take a step back and get right. The problem is not the worship or the word, the singing and the word. The problem resides within us. But we have to prepare, we have to be thoughtful and diligently thinking ahead of time how do I come in before worship? How do I come and approach this song? Maybe this new song, the prayer, offerings and tithes. How do I approach the Lord's table? How do I approach hearing God's word? Am I attentive to it? Or am I dismissive of it? Am I basically in my mind arguing with the guy going, oh man, no, that's not right. Or am I subtly and quietly asking God throughout the entire service, reach me in a way that I know you are present to encourage me to go forth with strength and conviction to bring change in this kingdom that your name might be honored and gloried among the people. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. This idea of preparation. Um, By and large, in my family life... um, Getting here on church for a Sunday morning has become relatively easy. I now have one person I really have to think about and worry about, and that's myself. There was a time where I had a hunt for five different pairs of shoes. They had it the night before. We made sure they had those pairs of shoes the night before. They had their shirt the night before. They had their pants the night before. They had everything they needed already laid out. But that first half an hour, of a Sunday morning was so unbelievably hectic that it felt like, oh, if I wasn't the pastor, it'd be so easy to say, you know what, this morning's just not working out, let's stay home. Has anyone ever else felt that? Or is my family the only family that has experienced the stress of getting ready two hours later than any other day of the week? Every other day of the week, we can be up and out by 7. But you mean up and out by 10? Oh, craziness. And you rush in that car. And you might be short with people in that car. And the kids are testy with each other. And the moment you hit that parking lot, maybe an air of conviction overcomes you. And you go... I'm glad no one saw me 15 minutes before. They would have evangelized me and asked me to be saved. (laughs) So Solomon says, and I don't think this is a 21st century problem. Solomon said, you, here and now, in the day that he was writing, some 1,500 um, years before Christ even was born, You need to be cautious and careful and prepare yourself as you walk into the house of God. And he gives us a reason for that in verse 2 and 3, where he talks about this idea of um, some wise words for worship. He says in verse 2 and 3, be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. I have to address something real quick. He's not talking about preachers right now he's not talking about someone who is going to pronounce god's word and communicate we've got plenty of time there's no limit to how many words we can utter although that is a good warning to only utter his words in the context of a message but he's kind of communicating to all of us that wordiness does not equal godliness wordiness does not equal holy wordiness does not equal good worship in singing ...and in the preaching of God's word. Wordiness is not the answer. It is a heart and words that are matched to God's glory and to his honor. That means we have to be very, very careful... ...at how we communicate with God during worship. And this is not just within this hour that we're all together... ...here sitting in pews or in chairs... This has to do with all of life. Our words need to be few. Now, there are times where someone is super excited about something that's gone on in their life, and they just, it explodes. It's a fire hydrant of excitement and words out of their mouth. It's not talking about I have an excitement for God and I need to tell you all about what God's doing in my life. He's talking about when you go and commune with God, as much as we call him Father, rightly so, And call him daddy, rightly so. There's an intimate relationship here between God and his creation, especially those redeemed. We have an intimate relationship with him to where we can go in a very casual manner and say, Lord, tough day. I didn't get it. Help my day tomorrow be a little bit more on point for you because today I missed it. Will you forgive me? It can be conversational with God. But at the same time, Solomon reminds us when we enter worship, when we enter a time of prayer, when we enter a time of meditating and reading God's word, when we talk about his word, when we sing about him, Solomon says it is far better that your prayers are short, that your communication to him is on the shorter side of things than the winded side of things. Now, this is giving comfort to some people who hate praying in public, And, and, you know, they'd be terrified if all of a sudden I picked on them. Let me me just try this as an example here. Let let me just find someone. I was waiting for everybody to kind of look down. But you all looked at me, so that doesn't count. There's a lot of fear that goes into praying in public. What do I say? What if I mess up? I can't go five minutes praying out loud. Take this verse to heart. It can be as simple as, Lord, you are a great God to us. Amen. And we should not on the other side go, wow, that prayer was too short. I mean, I can't have any meaning to it. I mean, God barely, we barely got God's attention with that. God's attention is not drawn by the volume of the words you communicate or if you communicate in King James, thy, thou only type of praying. It's heart and soul both with your mind. And Solomon says, be short, be short, be short with your communicating with God, because it is so easy to just be in this dream state where your mind is wandering, where you're not focused, where a million different things come into your mind, and before you know it, you've blabbered on for 15 minutes to God, and anyone listening to that conversation, including God, looks at that and goes, what? What are you saying? You're just rambling repetitive words that you heard someone else say. Instead, it'd be far better if you were just quiet. That attaches itself to every aspect of our communicating with God. Far better to be short and quick and to the point than to be drawn out and lengthy. Lord's Prayer or the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Because the Lord's Prayer, as I've communicated before, is in John 17. But the prayer he taught his disciples that we often call the Lord's Prayer, but it's our prayer to God, is no more than two minutes long. No more than two minutes. In fact, you could probably read through it in less than a minute and still have meaning to it. When was the last time you went to a prayer meeting and everyone prayed, like the Lord did, in one minute each? And you were done in ten minutes. You would feel gypped. You would say, oh, that's not a prayer meeting. We barely even started. We need to go on 10 minutes each. And yet, if you look at the Lord's example on how we are to pray, how he taught us to pray, time is not relevant. It's the content and the heart that's relevant. So that's why Solomon says, be not rash with your mouth. Don't just give word salad and pontificate and just explode with wordiness. Let it be few. Let your heart not be hasty to utter a word before God. Tim, are you saying that there are times when I'm having a devotional moment, I'm reading a verse, and I don't have to be saying something to God in a prayer? Absolutely. You can have absolute silence and still have a growing, thriving relationship with God in that moment of prayer. It does not have to be wordy. It has to be true. It has to be of the heart. And as Solomon says, you need to be careful and keep it shorter rather than longer. See, in... Revelation 1, verse 17. And you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read part of the verse there. This is when John is being confronted with all of the awesomeness about Jesus revealing to him that he is the Alpha and the Omega. And what would be happening in John's lifetime and in lifetimes to come. And John's response is the same as everyone who is faced with something that is supernaturally spiritual in front of their face. When God see, when John sees Jesus face to face in this vision, says this in verse 17 of Revelation 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. When I was confronted with the volume of Christ's majesty, John As if he was dead why would John have that kind of reaction to Jesus you would think John you know Jesus I mean you walked with him for three years he was one of your beloved you were one of his close three top disciples what do you do if you haven't seen someone in a long time that you have respect for and love for and you you've walked with before you're up there hugging, excitement, high five. Oh, man, it's great to see you. This is exciting. Where have you been? What have you done? You're all full of excitement. You are relating story after story after story. Hey, you know, you know, three years ago, I know you weren't there, but this happened. And 10 years ago, this happened. And now they're here. John, when he saw Christ, who was intimately involved with him as a disciple, was quiet. Because John knew. He's not just a buddy that I hung out with for a while and he taught me some good things. He is in heaven, I am on earth. He is the creator, I am the creature. There is a distinction that shakes the world's foundations and the mountains tremble before him, the seas roar and the animals themselves bow in worship. The trees and the flowers All of creation acknowledges he is great and greatly to be praised. And we are so flippant and so casual about worshiping him and praying to him that we never take it seriously. Now, seriousness does not mean stoic. It does not mean no emotion and we're standing at attention and we're all in a suit and tie and, you know, we don't move. No. Seriousness is realizing who he is and who I am. And the only way that I can have a relationship with him is through Christ. And that relationship is dear. It is beautiful. It is preciously held You can be excited about it. You can smile about it. You can move to it. But it cannot be so familiar that you just vomit words endlessly before him. Be prepared. Talk few words. Heart and mind have to be matched. And lastly, in the last few verses... He gives us some more information and instruction about words and promises in particular in worship. He says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. And so this vowing is not, uh, this vowing is, is, is rather very simple. It's, Lord, I adore you. Okay, take that as an example. Lord, I adore you. And if you're not adoring him, if you do not value him and appreciate him, you have just lied to him and not kept your vow. How many words have we uttered, just following along slides, that are in one ear and out the other, and it's just repetitive to us, but we don't live up to it? How many times have we sung about not worrying because we're in his hands? How many times have we sung about his promises, but yet we don't believe it? We get stressed out when things don't go our way. How many times have we felt alone when God has said, I am always with you, and we've sung about that? So in a very small sense, we say the words, but we don't live them. And Solomon says... You gotta pay what you say. If you say this about God, you gotta believe it. You gotta live it. If you say you're gonna do this and you're gonna uh, live, you know, love one another, you know, or, or any of those concepts about forgiveness and mercy towards others, we better live it. We better pay what we vow, what we say, we believe, and do. He says it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Sorry, God, You know, I said I was going to uh, do this in my life or I said this about you in my life or I promised this to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ when I said... We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. But you know what? I I was just caught up in the emotion of things. I really do want to have bitterness, anger, and hatred, and envy towards my brothers and sisters. I, I really should have been honest about that from the very beginning. He says, it's better if you said nothing than to say that you love one another, and then you don't act like it. That you love me, but you don't act like it. That you trust in me, but you don't. That you think my grace is amazing, but you doubt it. It's better if you said nothing. Now that doesn't mean that when at the end of the service we all stand up and we sing the last song, that none of you say anything because you're afraid of, oh, what if I say something and I really don't mean it? I better just not be quiet. That, it's a learning process. We read the words, we sing them, we mean them, we are joyous about them. God has created us to worship him, to communicate with him through words of song, prayer, and meditation silently in our own hearts. So it doesn't mean that I I don't say anything before God because I'm afraid I'll mess up. That's all part of the learning curve. The important thing that Solomon is presenting to us is when we communicate with God, we need to be thoughtful about it. We need to think about it. We need to be mindful. Are these words truth? Is my heart in this or is my heart somewhere else? If my heart and my mind is somewhere else, then i got to fix that. And the problem is not the song or the preaching. The problem is me. I need to fix me to be in the right heart, mind, and spirit for worship. That might mean I have to prepare about it. Maybe, maybe on Saturday night before going to bed, I think to myself... And I shoot a very quick prayer up to God saying, God, tomorrow, I think we're going to be in Ecclesiastes. Bless Tim's words that they might reach my heart. I have no idea what songs we're going to sing, but Lord, let it be joyous singing, both with my heart and my mind. Let me unite and rejoice with my brothers and sisters in this beautiful activity of singing. It could be that simple, that mindful, that you're going to sing and pray and hear God's word with the distinction, he's in heaven, we're on earth. He's the creator, we are the creature. And so when I say something to him, I need to mean it. As Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Whatever the vow may be, Lord, I'm going to do this this week for you. Then you better do it as much as, Lord, I believe in you and trust in you and you hold me in your arms and hands, you better believe that instead of doubting him and filling your life with worry and fear over the next thing that doesn't go right for you. He concludes in verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity but God is the one who you must fear. You can talk a good talk, and you might be able to move people with your talk, and you might be able to inspire people with your talk. But when we come to worship, when we come to the preaching of God's word, when we come to singing, we're not doing it to impress one another. We're not doing it to impress the people outside this room saying, oh, this is where you need to be because listen to us. If we ever have that mindset, we're missing the entire point of what Solomon is telling us. That our mindset from the beginning to the end needs to be, I am before God, worshiping in song and in word. He is the audience of one. I don't have to fear how other people are going to respond and react. They're not my audience. He is. I know that it can be a common practice. And you can come afterwards and tell me I'm wrong, but I think it's a common practice that after a church service, the conversation in the car, going home, can go one of two ways. Usually goes this way though. Can you believe we sang that song? I hate that song. Can you believe how slow they played it? Can you believe how They played it. Can you believe they made a stand for all three songs? I couldn't sit at all. Can you believe another new song? Can you believe they're not singing any new songs? And you can go on and on and on. Can you believe how long that guy talked? Can you believe it was so boring? It made no sense. It didn't answer the question I had. And you then become an expert at picking apart a worship service. I know. That I'm not the only one that has driven home thinking that. When was the last time you drove home in a car where you normally had those conversations and instead you said, How was God pleased with my heart and my mind during those worship songs? It was hard for me to focus. Can you help me focus? How did you focus today? okay, it was hard for all of us, so okay, let's pray this week that we become focused for next week, that our heart is in it and our mind is in it. How was God pleased today with how I sang to him, prayed to him, listened to his words? I want to close with reading a psalm that I know we know. Psalm 150. Psalm 150 says, Praise Jehovah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. So where are we supposed to praise God? Everywhere. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. If you ever forget what you can thank God for, you can thank him for his greatness and his mighty deeds, and you are set. You don't have to thank thank him or praise him for anything more than his mighty deeds and his greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Dance! Movement! Excitement! Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. And just in case we didn't get that, Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Oh my goodness. Do you know how many things I would hear after the service if all we had was Jeff playing the drums, excuse me, not the drums, but just pounding on the cymbals? No matter how much we try to mute some of that, I would get complaints if he went all animal on us. Reference to, of course, Muppets, but we got that. But God is telling us there has to be a sense that we notice worship taking place, that we notice it. It's not just solemn and somber. It's exciting. And it's exciting because we get to talk about his mighty deeds and his greatness. We get to get excited about it because God has made us emotional beings to be excited about him and about what he's done. So praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise Jehovah. Praise Jehovah. I want you to stand. I want the band to come up, and we are going to take this song, and we are going to praise God with it, and we're going to sing it with loud voices, with excitement, because the words I know are true, but meditate upon those words. Think of those words and remind yourself, I am here not to impress the people around me, or to be entertained by the band. I am here to worship this God of greatness and this God of mighty deeds, and I am gonna let it all out. Because if I have breath, then I can declare his greatness and his mighty deeds. Let's stand and sing.